Well, this morning you can open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 1, Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We have a very special passage before us, really a key passage, where we get to see Jesus and the disciples go fishing. And I have to say, this is actually one of the reasons I like fishing today. It's because you have this small little connection with Jesus and the disciples, some of whom were fishermen by trade. Amazingly, the basic tools and techniques of fishing haven't changed all that much since then. Of course, if you're commercial fishing today, that's a different ballgame, but just that individual small-scale fishing, it's, it's pretty much the same. If you've got a pole with some line attached to it, a hook at the end, maybe some bait, and you're in business. It hasn't changed. Today we have, you know, of course, advanced graphite rods, braided nylon line, carbon steel fishing hooks. But uh, apart from these advancements, the concept and the basic, basic method is the same. And I wonder, even with our advanced gear, how much better we are at catching fish. The ancient Egyptians were known for their fishing technology. The Nile River was full of fish, and the Egyptian civilization revolved around it. From very early on, they were able to forge metal hooks with barbs on them, and we've been using them ever since. The ancient Greeks used the same fishing technology. They made some innovations when it came to spear fishing. The trident was formed, which is like a spear, but instead of one poke, it has three. And spear, spear fishing seems hard enough, so tripling your chances sounds like a good idea. The Romans were very adept at using nets, but it was the Eastern civilizations, like the Chinese, who started using gill nets. This is where they would take a net and they would attach some stones to the bottom as weights, some wood to the top as floats, and they would suspend the net vertically in water and stretching it from shore to shore or a boat to another. Fish would get caught, tangled in the net, and you're done. And although the materials have changed, that same technique is still used today. Now, I know, of course, things have changed, but I do all this studying of the ancient world. It's just a little fun to have a small connection to what it was like to live back then. I also like fishing because you get to connect with God's creation. We're so used to spending all of our time surrounded by four walls that we forget the glory of creation which in and of itself points to the glory of God. So I find that there's nothing better than escaping the concrete jungle, heading out to the lake, getting on the water, and fishing. Fishing just can't be done in an office. It's not possible. Going to the ocean is even better because when you're out to sea, even just a little bit out, you get dwarfed. You get swallowed up by the vastness of the ocean. You're reminded how small you are, how big the world is, which in turn just tells you how big God is. God made the world big on purpose, that we would always be reminded how much bigger he must be. And look, you get all this from fishing. Furthermore, there's nothing quite like fishing to remind you of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things, and if God is not for you, you have no chance of success. This is true of all things. It's just particularly evident when fishing. But there's, there's some skill involved and a little bit of knowledge you need to have. But at the end of the day, you just can't make the fish 
jump on your hook. You could put an expert angler on a boat with all the advanced gear, all the knowledge, next to a small child who doesn't know anything and has a child's rod, and there's a real chance. There's a real chance the child will do better that day. All this goes to say in life, you're never really in control. Sometimes you fool yourself into believing you are, but you're not. God is in control, and when you go fishing, there's just no fooling yourself. There's no mistaking it. You know who's in control. At least this is how we console ourselves after another bad day. We say, well, I guess, I guess it wasn't God's will today. And finally, I like fishing because it lets you connect with ministry. Fishing is one of the main analogies Jesus used to paint the picture of discipleship. Making disciples is just like fishing in many respects. And by doing some real fishing, you can actually gain some valuable wisdom and insight into the more important work of making disciples. And as I mentioned, the passage we have in Mark today, it's all about fishing. We see the disciples fish for fish, and we see Jesus fish for disciples. Is a very strategic passage in Mark as well. Not only are we introduced to some of the main disciples, but we also come to find just what discipleship is. His gospel is just getting up to speed. The ministry of Jesus has just begun. And the first story he presents to us after the baptism and temptation of Jesus is this. Jesus calling disciples. It's a story of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. And you can tell this is going to be a huge theme in the Gospel of Mark. Now, what we see of Jesus and the disciples here, it's unique, but at the same time, it's also the pattern of all discipleship. I mean, true, you are not called by Jesus in person as you're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. It's not how you are called. But in general, though, the call is the same. The commission is the same, and the response is the same. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what is more important for us to know? So after the baptism of Jesus, after his temptation in the wilderness, Mark jumps us forward to his ministry in Galilee, and the first thing we see is this right here. Read along with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. We start off here in Mark in a brand new setting. It's a setting that's going to last for a long time. So I figured I'd start by spending a little bit of time 
letting you know about this new setting, which is Galilee. We're going to be stuck in Galilee for a long time. Not a bad thing, though. You might notice Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present the beginning of Christ's ministry as it started in Galilee. And as I mentioned last week, a big turning point was the arrest of John the Baptist. Just look back at verse 14 in Mark chapter 1. Remember this? Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Before this time, Jesus had been ministering in the south, in Judea. This was after his baptism by John. And for a little while, the ministry of Jesus was contemporaneous with the ministry of John. Meaning at the same time. They're in the same place, in the same region. They weren't like back to back, but they were ministering the same area together. And both of them were taking some heat. Religious leaders who dominated the South, they did not like John. And they were starting not to like Jesus. They didn't like John because John exposed their hypocrisy. And they started to persecute him. Things, though, took a turn for the worse for John when Herod started to persecute him as well. And eventually Herod had John imprisoned much to the delight of the Pharisees. At around the same time, though, the Pharisees learned that Jesus was making more disciples than John. He was getting even bigger than John. They didn't like that either. And so there was a conflict brewing. And as John chapter 4 says, to avoid this conflict, Jesus left. He left the south and he went up north to Galilee. Now, it's not like Jesus was opposed to conflict. It just wasn't the appointed time. It wasn't the time yet. He had ministry to do. He had some disciples to call. It wasn't time. So he went up to Galilee to minister. Later, the time would come. Jesus would return south to Jerusalem. He would face that opposition. He would be killed. But not yet. It's not time yet. Now he goes to Galilee, like verse 14 says. Galilee was the most northern of the three Roman provinces in Palestine. You've got Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee in the north. Galilee was the most populated of these regions. It was also the most Gentile-dominated. And this is why that the pure-blooded, Orthodox Jews of the South, they they despised Galileans for this reason. They were defiled. Yet Jesus, he did most of his ministry there. Of his 33 great recorded miracles, most were in Galilee. Of his 32 amazing parables, 19 were in Galilee. And of his 12 special disciples, 11 came from Galilee, all except Judas Iscariot. There was a clear Galilean flavor to Christ's ministry, which in turn meant there was a clear Gentile flavor to Christ's ministry. Yet this was no accident, even for the Jewish Messiah. It's true, he did come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he also came to be a light to the Gentiles. 
And all three of the Synoptic Gospels make that point clear. All this goes to say that Jesus entering Galilee to minister, it's not an accident and it's not insignificant. Now, first things first, Christ's first order of business as he begins his Galilean ministry is to call some disciples. He's going to do some fishing. And so we see him go to where all people go when they want to fish. It's the Sea of Galilee. Verse 16 says he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, walking on sandy shores. The Sea of Galilee is perhaps the most famous sea in the Bible, definitely in the New Testament. And we know it well from the four Gospels. This was the sea that Jesus stilled. This was the sea that Jesus walked on. And here, this is the sea where Jesus calls his disciples. The Sea of Galilee is located 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It's fed by the Jordan River. Later, it, it dumps back out into the Jordan River. It's roughly 12 miles long, 6 miles wide. The Jews at the time called it the Sea of Chinnereth, which in Hebrew means harp-shaped, and it's a fitting title. If you look at it on a map, it, it looks like a harp. Just a little bit closer to home, the Sea of Galilee most resembles in shape Lake Tahoe. At least I know that well. Actually, it's the lake where I proposed to Angel. We used to go there from, during college and, and snowboarding and whatnot. But remarkably, they look almost identical in shape, except Tahoe is a, is a bit larger than Galilee. And Tahoe is way deeper. Tahoe, just by way of comparison, goes down 1,600 feet. Galilee just 160. However, whereas most lakes like Tahoe are way up in the mountains, the Sea of Galilee rests 680 feet below sea level. It's basically at the bottom of a, of a valley, and it's surrounded all the way by rising mountains. But despite this terrain, nine cities of 15,000 people or more surrounded the lake. The Sea of Galilee attracted so many people because it was an excellent drinking lake. The water was said to be clear and sweet and better than any river or spring. And it was also an excellent fishing lake. The water was teeming with fish. Every town had a, a bustling port supporting hundreds of local fishermen. Later, the ancient historian Josephus in, in AD 68, he recorded that when the Romans invaded and they took over, they commandeered from the Sea of Galilee 250 uh, fishing vessels, which at the time, that was, that was a ton. And the fish in Galilee, they were prized. They were actually highly valued. Fish from Galilee were exported as far away as Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch in Syria. This, this was big business, actually. It was big business enough, at least, to attract a pair of brothers looking to make a living. Because as Jesus walked along the shore of this busy lake, he, verse 16, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I mentioned earlier how even ancient fishermen would use hooks and line to catch fish, but 
If you're fishing as a business, you use nets. Nets are the way to go. These would have been 10 to 15 foot circular nets. You would cast them out from the hip. They would land on the water and, and spread out. And then they would promptly sink because the edges were weighted down. They would sink to the bottom, but then there would be another rope around that would you could pull and kind of cinch it shut. You drag in your net, and you're good to go. More importantly, though, in this passage, here we meet Peter and Andrew, two of the eventual 12 disciples. And Peter comes first, going by his earlier name of Simon. Peter is always listed first. In every list in the New Testament, Peter comes first. This is because he was the leader of the 12, the spokesman for the apostles. Peter had an intense devotion to the Lord. Peter's the one. Peter's the one who jumps out into the Sea of Galilee, finding himself walking on water in order to meet the Lord on the water. And then later, Peter is the one again who, when the risen Lord calls to them from the, the shore of Galilee, Peter's the one who, once again, jumps out into the Sea of Galilee. This time he doesn't walk, he swims to shore because he can't wait to see the Lord. The rest of the disciples, they row in the boat to shore. He can't wait. He jumps in to see the Lord. Peter was also the disciple who confessed the true identity of Jesus. When Jesus questioned the disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They all responded, well, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Then Jesus said, okay, but who do you say that I am? And who piped up? Peter responds and he says, you are the Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Ironically, though, not long after confessing Jesus as the Christ, Peter would deny Jesus. But although he stumbled, he was restored, and he rose to a new level of strength in the Lord. Having just preached through First and Second Peter, and now here we're in Mark, which is regarded by most as Peter's gospel, this is not the first, definitely not the last, we will see of this Galilean fisherman turned leader of the church. But first here we meet Peter. Secondly, we meet Simon, Peter's brother, Andrew. Simon and Andrew were both originally from Bethsaida, but they had recently moved with their family to Capernaum. That's on the northern shore of Galilee. That was their new home where they started their fishing business. Interestingly, though, Andrew is not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name, an old Greek name. Many Jews living in Greek territory like Galilee, they would start adopting Greek customs, including naming their children with Greek names. And it's interesting that Jesus would choose so many disciples with Greek influences. It's almost like he was trying to prepare them for some wider ministry to Greek-speaking Gentiles after his death. Now, while Peter is known as a leader, Andrew is known as a bringer. He's a bringer, meaning whenever we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. It's just what he does. 
when we first meet Andrew, he is the one who brings his brother Simon to see Jesus. We'll talk about that encounter later. Also, at the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew is the one who brought the boy. Remember, he had the five loaves and the two fish. He's the one who brought the boy to Jesus. And then later, there's a group of Greeks who wanted to speak with Jesus. Andrew is the one who brought them to him. He was the bringer. And along with his brother, Simon Peter, Andrew was among the top four of Christ's disciples. But he wasn't among the top three. The top three, the inner circle, belonged to Peter and then two others. Another pair of brothers whom we meet right now. Look at verse 19. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Here we find another pair of brothers, also fishermen. And these two, plus Peter, would become Christ's closest disciples. We find Simon and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. We find James and John mending the nets, preparing for the next day of fishing. We find Simon and Andrew on the shore. James and John are in the boat. It's their father's boat, whose name was Zebedee. And Zebedee was a successful fisherman. He owned a boat. He hired many servants. And he seemingly was in the money. Like I said, this could have been big business. Here, James comes first. He was the older of the two. And James is always mentioned in connection with his brother, John. And together, these two guys were very spirited. They're given the nickname by Jesus, Sons of Thunder. Because they were so rash and, and passionate. It was these two who, when a Samaritan village refused to accept Jesus, these two asked that fire be called down from heaven to consume them. Jesus had to, to pull them back. And later, it was these two again who tried to maneuver their way to the top of the kingdom, asking to sit at Christ's right hand and his left in the kingdom. Yet the Lord would later use their strong-willed personalities to provide strong-willed leadership for the church. They always came together, but after the death of Jesus, their paths started to diverge. Whereas the Apostle John was the last of the twelve to die, his brother James was the first, the first to be martyred. And can you just imagine that, though, from John's perspective? Having to watch all of the apostles, one by one, be martyred for the faith, starting with your brother. John himself, though, would not be martyred. John was the only apostle to live out his days and die of old age. And maybe, just maybe, this is because John was that special disciple whom the Lord loved. Remember that? Jesus, of course, loved all of his disciples, but he had a special brotherhood with John. And John himself would later reflect this special love in his guidance of the church. Now, real quick, there may be another reason, though, why Jesus chooses James and John to follow him. There's a strong possibility 
that James and John were the cousins of Jesus. Did you know that? I'll be brief, but when you read Mark chapter 15, verse 40, you learn that in addition to the two Marys, there was another woman at the crucifixion of Jesus. Her name was Salome. You compare this with Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56. You learn that this woman, Salome, was actually the mother of James and John. And then finally, comparing this with John chapter 19, verse 25, you learn that this woman, Salome, mother of James and John, was actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if you're not really following, all this means is, unless there was some other woman at the cross who could fit this role, Jesus was cousins with James and John. Now, we cannot know this with absolute certainty, but if it's true, it would explain a few things. It may explain why Jesus finds and chooses this pair of brothers. But whatever the case, whatever the relationship was between Jesus and these four before this, it doesn't really matter. Because here, everything's about to change. Their relationship is about to change because here, now, Jesus issues a call. And this is where we find the real significance of our passage this morning. Enough with the background. Here, I want to point you to, first, the call. Notice the call in verse 17. What did Jesus say to them? It starts with just two words. Follow me. Follow me. Two simple words, one huge calling, follow me. First, you need to understand that this call to follow Jesus is not just for these four fishermen. This is the call of discipleship upon all believers. It's the same call today. No one is saved apart from this call. And Mark presents this to us up front as normative even for today. When you read this and you encounter Jesus calling, you are supposed to feel like he's calling you to follow him. That's the point. In case you don't believe me, just just quickly turn the page to Mark chapter 8. This is the passage that sits at the very heart of Mark's gospel. And notice what Jesus says again, Mark chapter 8. This is literally the the, the middle point of Mark. The highlight, Mark chapter 8, look at verse 34. And he summoned, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, who? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the call for anyone who wishes to come after him. This is the call to lose your life, to give it up, to hand it over so that you may find new life in Christ. This is the call to change your identity. You're becoming his disciple. The call, this call is the same today. It's the call to follow Jesus. 
So first, like I said, you need to understand this call. Yes, it's for these four fishermen in a special way, but there's a call above this, a call that is for all disciples today. This is your call. Now we have to ask, though, what exactly does this mean? What does this call entail? The call to follow Jesus has both a negative and a positive aspect. To follow Jesus, you must first stop following whatever else leads you in life. You have to divert your path. Every winter, inevitably, an airport is forced to close because of ice on the runway. And so all the airplanes that were heading there, they have to divert. By definition, this involves leaving one course behind and charting a new course. And so it is with following Jesus. You leave your old way of life behind. It's gone. That that path is gone. You leave it and you follow his path. You, You chart a new course, his course, and you follow Just like Jesus preached, remember, just before this, what was his message? Repent and believe. It's the same thing. Repent. Turn away from all things contrary to God and believe. Follow him. Speaking of which, you will also notice that in this call, Jesus does not say, follow the stars. He does not say, follow your heart. Or follow your feelings. He says, follow me. Jesus is the focus of this new way. Just like Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 say, following Jesus, it's like running this race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. To follow him means you go where he goes. And this is going to involve some suffering in life. But it also involves glory. To follow him means you live like he lives. This includes holiness and righteousness. It does not include sin. To follow him means you think like he thinks. This includes doing all things according to the will of God. Seeking to live for his glory. This is all a part of being his disciple and following him. This is just a part of what it means. You have to realize what Jesus was doing here with these four fishermen was not normal. This was not normal. Rabbis never recruited students, ever. Students always sought out their master, their rabbi. There's even an application process. They had exams where a potential disciple would have to demonstrate his worth. It's kind of like college entrance exams today, right? There's so many hoops you have to jump through just to get accepted into a a good college. You need excellent grades, high SAT scores, all these AP credits, lots of extracurricular activities, all that stuff. I mean, how nice it must be to be that star athlete where all the colleges come seek you. For most of us, we have to go, we have to do the seeking. But here with Jesus, this call, he does the seeking. He handpicks his disciples. If you're called, it's not an achievement. It's a gift. For Jesus does not base his choice on who's best 
who is the most spiritual, who's the most worthy. God's sovereign will stands behind it all. And accordingly, this call is unconditional. Notice Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they don't have to pass a test to follow Jesus. There's no exam. They don't have to demonstrate their knowledge. They don't have to prove their holiness. Nothing. They're just called to follow. And that's it. Nothing otherwise makes them special. I mean, think about these guys. They're not rich. They're not powerful. They're not trained. They're not influential. What do they have? But that's okay, because this call is unconditional. There are no conditions. I mean, don't you find it interesting that Jesus did not choose his disciples from among the Pharisees, from among the spiritually elite He didn't. He found them among the common people, even the uneducated. Jesus did not go to the synagogues to find followers. Isn't that interesting? He went to the sea. He did not look for those who kept the law perfectly. He looked for those who were humble in heart and had a true heart for God. Do not feel that you must be perfect to be accepted by God. That you must be spiritually flawless for God to accept you. If that were the conditions for God calling you to salvation, no one would be saved. No one. Rather, be humble in heart, meek in spirit, crying out to the Lord. He will hear that call. And he will change you. This call changes you. God uses this call to conform you. Let me read you a verse here. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Verses you all know. You know them for a reason. Because they're good. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. For those who are called... According to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You see here, It starts with God's call, and it's irresistible. When God calls you through Jesus, there's there's no stopping this train of salvation. And you also see here that God's call is purposeful. He has a purpose in calling you. And that call is meant to conform you into the image of Christ. There's no more worthy goal than this, nothing more pleasing to the Lord than this, your Christ-likeness. And so you can see now why this call comes in the form of Jesus saying, follow me. He's the goal. He is the call. Never. Never did a rabbi or a prophet even ever tell people, follow me. 
They never said that. They always said, follow God. Follow his ways, you know, observe his statutes, all that stuff. They never said, follow me. But here on the scene comes this Jesus guy, and he has the audacity to tell people to follow me? But we come to find this is appropriate because he has the authority to back that up. We'll see that next week. Again, what we see here in Mark chapter 1, it's the call of four fishermen to become his disciples, sure. But it's more than that. It is more than that. This is the pattern for all discipleship. And you must know what this call entails. Because there's no salvation, there's no discipleship, there's no new birth apart from this call. But this call does not come alone. Attached to it is a commission. That's the second thing I want to point to you in this this passage. Notice now the commission, verse 17. Starts with the call, secondly the commission. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. From farming to reaping, building to managing, shepherding to serving, there are many different analogies used in the Bible to paint the picture of what we call discipleship. Here we have one of of the best, that's fishing. When you are called to become a disciple, this comes with a commission to become a fisherman. But you're not trying to catch salmon or trout or sea bass, or tuna. You are trying to catch people. Understand, you don't call people. You don't save people. You can't. It's not in your power. You don't have the power to do that. But you are called to lead people to Jesus so that he might call them to salvation. This idea of fishing is not new. God was pictured as a fisher in the Old Testament, only it was in the context of judgment. Here in our passage, there's still that undertone of judgment, but now we are called to fish people out of the waters of judgment, to rescue them from judgment. You may think that sounds a little backwards because when you go fishing, the fish die. And that's true. That's true for fishing for souls as well. When you catch someone, they die, but then they come to new life. So this is your commission, to be fishers of men, women. For those here who claim to be disciples, those here, you you say you follow Jesus. You say you have been saved by him. Do you then understand this is your commission? You've been given a purpose now. As part of your discipleship, you have a mission. Do you understand this? Do you, do you believe this? Do you, do you get this? This is part of your identity now if you are in Christ. You are a fisher of souls. Just like Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, 20, for all disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's your job. That is your commission to make disciples. Go fishing. Or hear about how about this? First Peter chapter two verse nine. Remember this? He says, "You are a chosen race." Notice a chosen 
race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you get that? Why did God call you? There's a purpose. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of the God who called you out of darkness and into light. Are you doing this? Are you proclaiming to others the excellencies of the God who calls? Or do you find yourself, you're always silent? You never speak. You never never speak up when the time comes. Listen, I, I'm not trying to, to guilt you. I do not believe in guilt-driven evangelism at all. But I, I need to make certain that you understand that part of your calling includes this commission. At least you know that part of your calling includes this commission. I want to ensure that you know part of this new birth comes with a new job. It's called being fishers of men. I want to help you realize that if, if you never call others, you find yourself never sharing the gospel, never telling people what the Lord has done in your life, never mentioning the Lord. You have no desire to warn people. You have no joy to share with people. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with that. You need to realize that. This is not something you need to be guilted into. This, this should be something you should be overjoyed to do. Challenging, sure. Sometimes scary, yeah. But it's still your commission, your joy. This does not mean you become an expert evangelist on day one. Notice Jesus told the disciples he would make them become fishers of men. But even on day one, you realize your new identity now. I've got a new mission. I have a mission. I have a purpose in this whole following Jesus thing. And that's to point others to him as well. I hope you truly embrace this commission. Also realize this commission to share the gospel and to make disciples. It's not just for these so-called professionals. Have you, ever, have you ever used this excuse before or maybe thought this? I don't really have to share the gospel with this person. No, I'll just invite him to church and let pastor do it. That's true. Some people are called and gifted, especially when it comes to being evangelists. The disciples, remember this? After the death of Jesus, where did they go? They went back to Galilee. What did they do? They went fishing. Hopped back in the boat, maybe for old time's sake, and they went fishing. But the risen Lord greeted them on the shore of Galilee, and that was it. That was the end of their fishing career forever. That was the end of the business once and for all. Now they were to be full-time, full-time fishers of men. But not all of his disciples were called like that. They weren't. Jesus had more than just the twelve. He had more disciples. And, and afterwards, some of them did. They went back home. They went back to their businesses. They went back to their lives. And that's not wrong. But this did not mean that they were not commissioned still to be fishers of men wherever they were in their, in their life. Because all have this commission. 
So even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're not a pastor or a missionary, you don't escape this commission. You're still called by Jesus to be a disciple maker. So I urge you to realize this and then just get busy throwing your line in the water. Just get out there and share. You may get snagged. Your line may get tangled. Your your hook may get bent. Most fish may get away. You don't have to worry about that. You don't need to worry about any of that. God is sovereign. Just get busy with this commission that came with your calling. It's what God wants to see you do. That's the response he wants. And this leads us to finally now in this passage, the response. Notice the response of the disciples. We've seen their call and their commission. Lastly here, verse 17, the response. Jesus said to them, follow me. Now I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. How would you characterize this response by the disciples? First, it is immediate. No time passes. They're not waiting for a better offer. They're not waiting to see who else might come around. Also, their response is total. There's no wavering here. They're not trying to hedge their bets and get the best of both worlds. Okay, yeah, we'll follow, but can we keep the fishing on weekends? It's just a comprehensive, immediate response. Simon and Andrew leave their nets behind. The picture is that they just drop them where they are. They don't even bother reeling them back in. They just leave because they're not going to need them anymore. James and John, likewise, they leave behind their nets and their boat and their father. Now Zebedee doesn't seem to object and he's got other servants, so it's not like they're leaving him high and dry. But nonetheless, they're leaving it all behind and they're going to follow the Lord. Mark shows us Christ's sudden call and the disciples' sudden response to highlight the force and the power of the call to discipleship. Just as the call and the commission is normative for all Christians, so is this response. God's call is sovereign, but he has made us responsible to respond. And the right response is total faith and obedience. Have you responded to the Lord in this way? Jesus would go on to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay the penalty for sins that you might be forgiven and have everlasting life. By believing in him, confessing him, following him, you can be saved. How have you responded? How have you really responded to this call. I hope you don't delay. I hope for all of you here, your response is immediate because you don't know if you have it tomorrow and total because nothing else suffices. Now, briefly, we we have to be honest and accurate here 
Most times when you hear this passage preached, it's all about how amazingly immediate this was. I mean, look, so amazing. Jesus just calls them immediately and they respond immediately. And they didn't even know him. They just immediately drop everything at their first sight of Jesus and they follow him. It's true that this call is sudden, the response is sudden, but Mark, he actually doesn't say that they didn't know Jesus at this point. Actually, when Jesus called these four by the Sea of Galilee, they had already known Jesus for a year. Did you know that? They had already followed him for a little while, and they had already believed that he was the Messiah. If you don't believe me, just write down John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. We don't have time to read that right now. We were going to, but you can read that on your own. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. Really, all of John chapter 1 shows you, it takes us back, back in time to the baptism of Jesus. And right after that, we find John has two disciples, Andrew and presumably John, and he points them to Jesus. They follow Jesus. Peter comes along. They even confess Jesus is the Messiah. After this, Simon, Andrew, and John follow Jesus for a little while, but at some point, they stop following him. They go back home to Galilee. They go back to the family business. A year goes by, and here we have them in Galilee. Jesus finds them again. He calls them in a special way, and they follow him. So in a sense, they were actually already his disciples, but this is a new and distinct call to follow him with all of their lives, full time, no holding back. Now, why do I even bring this up? Well, because it's true, and I want you to know the bigger picture. But also, I think this background knowledge presents us with a unique application here. Because how many people do you know who, in a sense, they already know Jesus. I mean, they know about him. They know lots of stuff about Jesus. They may even say, yeah, sure, he's the Messiah. But they don't quite follow him. They know, even for years they know, but they don't quite follow. These disciples, after all, they had found the Messiah a year ago. They found the Messiah. Why would they go back to fishing? But they did. And Jesus knew that these disciples needed a special call so that they would clearly commit to following him as his special disciples. But is this perhaps like you? You know know Jesus. At least you know about him. You might even identify him as the true Messiah, but the busyness of life keeps you from truly following him. The Lord in your life is just an afterthought if you even think about him at all. There's just no real room in your life for this whole Christianity thing. I mean, just think about this. What do you have going on in your life? What are your difficulties in life right now? What are your challenges that you face? Difficulties at work, a boss who persecutes you, a spouse who is hard to live with, disobedient children, aging parents to take care of, a hard time paying the bills, maybe loneliness, all the while you have these challenges, you still find yourself consumed with materialistic interests. 
You're trying to fill that hole in your life with, with stuff or gadgets or experiences or vacations. All in all, you're just, just too busy for God. You, you just can't worry about fitting in another thing. Life is now. Life is here. Life is real. God, he's just far away. He's just an afterthought. You don't give him the time of day. Too much is going on. Even people in the church can be like this. Maybe you grew up in the church. You've got Christian friends. You do Christian things. Maybe even read your Bible every now and then. But you don't really follow. You live as if your life is still yours. It's as if you're too worried about the fish and the nets and the boat. And when he says, follow me, you're saying, my hands are full. In your life, God is just an afterthought, and it shows. But instead of being an afterthought, following Jesus means he is the thought. He's the thought. Everything else is the afterthought. He's your first thought. It's where you live for him, to serve him, not yourself. You seek his glory, not your own. This is what the Bible would phrase radical discipleship. It's the only type of discipleship, however. And look, this doesn't mean you have to abandon all your responsibilities in life. You've got to leave your job, your family, go into the desert, find a monastery, just live out your days, because that's the only way to follow Jesus seriously. That's not what it means. You still live life. Live life responsibly, but your life is his. Your life is directed by him now in every way. You're on his path. Your course is determined by him because you've left your own course behind. Your life is just in his hands, and who knows where it will go. So as you think about all the things that trouble you in life, everything that's consuming you, think first, what does it look like to follow Jesus right here, right now? What does it look like for me to follow him in this way? And everything else will follow. All the dominoes will just, they'll fall into place. Maybe for some, you do need to get rid of some things in life, some things that are holding you back, the fish, the nets, the boat, things you're clinging to that keep you from following, as you should. I don't know. Maybe you have it. Maybe you need to get rid of it. But the one who follows is willing to leave anything necessary to follow the Lord. These four men here, not the last we'll see of them, but they were called, they were commissioned, and they responded well. And the result from here on out is lives lived not comfortably. Not comfortably, but definitely pleasing to the Lord. And you need to ask, you need to decide, am I too ready and willing to hand over control of my life to the Lord for his sake? What comes next for you in your life? I have no idea. But I can guarantee that if you truly seek him and seek his way, it will be a life that is pleasing to the Lord.
Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our lives to you now. And we give them to you. We confess, like these disciples, that Jesus is, he's the one. This is it, Lord. This is the truth. He is the, he's really the way. He's really the truth. He's really the life. And we have been convinced of this. We confess him as Lord and Savior. And now we, we give him our lives. Lord, we lift up to you ourselves. It is what you want. Salvation is free. The gift is free, no strings attached, yet it comes with the demand of our entire lives. This is the only way. It's the way of discipleship. Life hereafter may not always be comfortable following you. In fact, it is guaranteed to be hard. Persecution will come for those who leave their lives behind and follow you, but it ends in glory and it results in you being pleased. And for those who love you, this is their desire. I pray for everyone here, this is their desire. What is this life about? What is the purpose, if not to live for you, to know you, to enjoy you, to seek your glory? I pray for those here who may not know you, who are still clinging to the nets and the fish and the stuff of this life. They are so consumed and busy with this world, thinking that's what matters, that's what satisfies, that's what gives them joy in life. And they're sadly mistaken. Lord, only you can change their hearts. You've got to call them. I pray for all of us that we we would just present Jesus to those people that he might issue the call, that they might be saved. I pray for them, Lord. Convict them, humble them, show them the way they might be saved and know the joy that results this new path. Lord, you've called us out of darkness into light. We praise you for it. We take up this commission to let others know about it. We pray it results in your ultimate glory now and forevermore. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.